Good morning. If you haven't met me, my name is A.K. Kuruvilla. I'm one of the elders here at Bayou City Fellowship. And if you're with us, worshiping here for the first time, we're going through the book of Mark. And today we're in Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 32 through 45. Now, the book of Mark, or the gospel of Mark, is all about discipleship. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? That's the question. So if you were to take, for example, the book of Mark and divide them into different sections, each of those will give us a facet of what a follower really looks like. Think of it this way. Let's say we're a piece of marble stone and the sculptor is working on us. Every bit of obedience is like a chipping away of a piece of this marble. So as we move in obedience through the word, we become more and more like Jesus. So obedience is the way we get to be more like Jesus. So today, as we look at Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45, we're going to find Jesus' recipe for greatness. How can I become great as a follower of Jesus? So first of all, let's orient ourselves um, We find, beginning in Mark chapter 8, we find that three times Jesus predicts what is going to happen to him, that he's going to to suffer, that he's going to be rejected, that he's going to be killed, and then that he's going to rise again. All of that he's predicting. And every time he does it, his disciples just don't get it. They misunderstand, they go after the wrong, uh, wrong ideas, and they just simply don't get what Jesus is telling them. And then you find Jesus going back and correcting and training them. And that's the pattern you find in all of those three predictions, uh, beginning with Mark chapter 8. So, in chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus announces for the first time that he's going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the religious authorities, says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So, that's what he predicted. And Peter, verse 32, and he was stating the matter plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter says, come on Jesus, what are you trying to say? This just doesn't make any sense. And Jesus then in turn rebuked Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but the devil's. Is that what he says? No. He says, you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Right? So every time we are not setting our mind on God's interest, or every time we're not concerned about God's perspective, every time we're not concerned about God's point of view, then what we're really doing is we're following Satan or the devil's interests. That's what he's saying. So, then he goes on to say in verse 34, if anyone wishes to come after me, that's Jesus, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. Every time our desires conflict with God's desires... Every time what God says conflicts with what we want to do, we should be willing to put our desires under God's desires, give priority to God's desires. That's what he's saying. 
and do that even if it means there's going to be suffering, there's going to be pain and death. That's a serious call and the radical commitment that Jesus is calling to. If you want to be my follower, I want you to know that you need to put my priorities way above any desires and priorities that you have in every situation and all of life, which is why this is rather difficult, isn't it? Uh, So this is what Jesus is asking us to do. Then we find a second prediction in Mark chapter 9, verse 31. Uh, He kind of repeats the same idea. And we find him saying, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. So right after that, we find again that the disciples don't get it. Because they get into an argument as to who is the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus is talking about his suffering, and they're worried about who is the greatest in the kingdom. And so Jesus then takes a child, one who is absolutely dependent, one who cannot fend for him or herself, one who is helpless, one who, who, is, who cannot really determine any actions, a little child, and says, if you serve someone like this child, that's the greatest person in the kingdom. That's what Jesus says. So here's what we see following the first two predictions. To follow Jesus, we have to be willing to follow his desire at all costs. And then we have to be willing to serve those who are helpless. Those are the two things. Now that brings us to the third prediction, uh, starting with chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. Now, they were amazed, literally. Uh, They were stunned. They were almost terrified. Why? Because Jesus is so firm and determined on his death march to Jerusalem. He just told them that he is going to go there, and they're going to kill him. And he doesn't have a problem firmly walking to that destination. That's the kind of model he has set for us, which then says that's what he calls us to do, to follow his desires at all costs. Know what God desires in the little things of life and the big things of life, and then follow it at all costs. So let's say he wants me to forgive. Am I willing to forgive at all costs, even if it is painful, even if it hurts me? Or let's say he wants me to be patient in a situation. Am I willing to be patient? Or do I want to jump in and start controlling the situation? What are my desires and how does it play with God's desires? So here Jesus is walking ahead. And then there were some who followed who were kind of scared. Scared because they just heard what Jesus said and they didn't want to get into the situation, possibly. But they were scared. And so Jesus pulls the 12 aside and describes in detail what's going to happen. Verse 33. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit upon him, and scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. So there are two phases to this prediction. First of all, the action taken by the religious leaders. What are they going to do? Uh, They're going to condemn him to death. 
And so they will not do the execution. They will hand them over to the Gentiles, the Roman rulers, and say, go do what you need to do, kill him. And what are they going to do? They're going to mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And if we read ahead, we know that's exactly what happened to Jesus. So this is the third time Jesus is predicting his own death and resurrection. Did the disciples get it this time? You'd hope that the third time is a charm. Let's see. Verse 35. And James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, uh, came up to him saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Interesting. They address him as teacher. Now, the last time we heard this address of teacher was in the, previous, in the, in the, in the earlier part of this chapter where the rich young ruler or the man with possessions comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, of course, classic Jesus, right? He comes back and says, let's clarify your terms here. What do you mean by good? There's only one good, and that's God. So are you calling me God? And then he goes on to say, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. He's obeyed all his commandments. And Jesus says, look, sell your possessions and follow me. He couldn't make the cut as a disciple simply because his possessions were more attractive to him. So James and John address Jesus as teacher, and you've got to think, okay, they probably don't make the cut either like this other man. Let's find out. Verse 36, what do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. And, uh, and they say, grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. Now the Zebedee brothers probably thought it was a reasonable request. After all, they were, have been hanging around with Jesus, Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John. Jesus took them uh, when he raised the little girl in chapter 5. He took them up to the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, where they saw Jesus in all his glory. So he's part of the inner crowd. Not only that, Zebedee, as we read in chapter 1, had hired servants. So he was, the dad was kind of a man of means and probably of reasonable social standing. So, and then Jesus gives them a special name, calls them sons of thunder. So, they probably thought, well, it's reasonable to ask. And if you go into Matthew's gospel, it says that the mother, along with her sons, made the request. Like all good mamas, she wanted her boys to have some prominent places. So here is what is interesting, right? Those who followed were afraid. We saw that in verse 32. They probably knew the dangerous situation that Jesus was heading to. The Zebedee brothers... They're just totally oblivious to what's going on. They're looking for prominent cabinet positions, right? That's what they're after. They're not interested in what's going on. They seem to be totally disconnected. And now look at the following interaction, verses 37 through 43. Let me just show you something fascinating. And they said to him, verse 37, but Jesus said to them, verse 38. And they said to him, verse 39, but to sit, verse 40. And hearing this, and calling them, 41 and 42, 43, but it is not among you. So, and, but, and, but, and, but, and, but. So, it looks like these guys are walking on opposite tracks, right? James and John are on I-10 East heading to Florida. Jesus is on I-10 West heading to California. They're not connecting here. So, what's going on? Let's look at it a little more carefully. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So 
notice what Jesus does not tell them. He does not tell them to go take a couple of courses and serve in leadership or get an internship in a church or attend a leadership conference. What he says is, he would say probably, they're all good. Nothing wrong with that. And he then goes on to talk about the cup and the cup that I drink, which is the cup of wrath, which is the sum total of all of God's wrath on sin poured out on Jesus. And the baptism he's talking about, baptism meaning immersion and immersion in suffering. So this total suffering that he's talking about is, is, is the topic of Jesus' question. So he's asking, do you know what you're asking for? Are you able to do this? So in other words, Jesus is saying this, guys, you have absolutely no clue as to what you're asking for. But let me ask you a question. Let's start with what's important here. First, you're asking for this big stuff. Let me ask you something else. Are you willing to suffer? The disciples say they can do it. Jesus said, all right, you will. Now, what kind of suffering does Jesus have in mind here? Sometimes we suffer because we live in a fallen world. Uh, Sinful men and women do things and we get caught in the crossfire for no fault of our own. Sometimes we suffer because of our own foolishness and sin. We sow foolishness and reap, uh, uh, reap the pain or the suffering. Sometimes, the Bible says, we suffer because of God's discipline. Hebrews says, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son he receives. Sometimes we suffer because of our faith, especially in certain parts of the world for sure. Uh, It can be as radical as death, but in other places it can be mocking, insults, being made fun of, etc. Sometimes suffering just happens as you move along in life. You're living an obedient life, you're seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness, and you're moving along, and suddenly a storm hits you. Now, it may be the loss of a job, totally unexpected. It may be a financial load come crushing on us, totally unexpected. It may be a relational earthquake of some sort, totally unexpected, coming from left field. It may be It may be a a visit to the doctor, uh, announcement of a terminal illness, or all kinds of things come into our lives. Suffering absolutely is the world we live in. There is suffering in this world. If you haven't faced suffering, just give yourself a few more days and you will feel it. Now, I've got to tell you this. There is a storm and turbulence that has hit our lives as a family right now. We're facing one. About a couple of weeks ago, my wife went in for a routine mammogram. That led to a biopsy about a week, eight days ago, which then led to a call from the doctor's office on Tuesday afternoon that said, we'd like for you to come by and see us. So she said, well, I'd like to come there with my husband. So it became Wednesday morning. So we walk into the doctor's office, and the doctor says, well, we found something malignant, and gives us the report. Now, everything is turned upside down when you hear that. Perhaps some of you have heard that before. But for us, with the first experience, it was totally shocking. 
all kinds of scenarios go through our minds. What on earth do we do? We have this those whole realm of uncertainty and doubt. How do we navigate this? In all of this, just like we navigate any of the unknown, we first have to take an account or catalog what we really know. So we know God's word to be absolutely true and it's convicting. We know the Bible says, pray without ceasing. So we say, okay, we'll keep praying. Praying for strength, praying for comfort, praying for healing, praying for wisdom, praying for guidance, praying for an enabling to stay faithful and steady through the journey and this turbulence. The Bible says, in everything give thanks. So we say, we'll thank God for everything. And we keep giving thanks. What else do we know for sure? From the first page to the last, we know that God is sovereign. Nothing comes to us without him letting it slip through his fingers. He is sovereign and he is in total control. And there's nothing that's impossible for him. Then we also know from God's word that God is all wise. He knows everything. There is nothing that escapes his knowledge base. He knows everything. He knows things before I even think about things. Now, if all I knew was God is sovereign and God is wise, I might possibly be terrified. But I also know that God is infinitely good. His love for me is from everlasting to everlasting. So sovereign God, infinitely wise, infinitely good, we say that's as much as we know. So let's hold on. And keep moving. God is in control. Now this doesn't mean it's easy. Don't get me wrong. It's painful. It's difficult. We're only starting the journey here. But we know God is in control. Now what kind of suffering is Jesus talking about here? Now if you think in terms of what he asked those disciples. And what happened to James and John. If we go further and read in Acts chapter 12. James died as a martyr. Herod killed him with a sword. And then we read in uh, Revelation that John was exiled to the island of Patmos. That's where he had this revelation and then he recorded that for us. So the suffering that Jesus is talking about is suffering that comes from following God in obedience. That's the kind of suffering he's saying. Are you willing to suffer? By walking in obedience to me, regardless of the consequences. Now, you and I may not be martyrs. We may not suffer exile. After all, we live in the buckle of the Bible belt here in Texas. I mean, everybody is Christian, right? Now, you may have experienced this, but you know what pain is like. Every time you choose to obey what God says, instead of, satisfying your personal desires, especially if they're in conflict, it is painful. Every time to say no to what you love to do and to say yes to what God is calling you to do is a very painful thing. Now, let's say a friend of mine deliberately hurt me with his words and actions. Everything in me wants to retaliate. If nothing, I want to give him the silent treatment. Pretend that he doesn't even exist. 
Certainly not on social media. So if I choose to obey God's viewpoint, then I'm called to forgive. I'm called to forgive even if it hurts me because this man has hurt me. But I'm called to release any obligation, release that person from any obligation, which is what true forgiveness is. That's what I'm called to do. Will I do it even in spite of the pain that it causes me? We read in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, for example, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Now, I wonder whether you've thought about this. It is easy to be a sacrifice that is where there is one cut and it's all over. What is it like to live, be a living sacrifice, to be cut a thousand times and still live, to be hurt a thousand times and still forgive? Now that is painful. Or let's say someone gives you a piece of their mind in very colorful language. Now, you just want to retaliate and the words are right there at the tip of your tongue. And you remember... The Bible says, let your speech always be filled with grace. It is hard. It is painful. But that's what God is calling us to do. So Jesus is calling us to a lifestyle of obedience in the little things and the big things. Where we're saying, Lord, when your desires conflict with mine, I'm going to choose you and nothing else regardless of the cost and regardless of the pain that it's going to cost me. That's the heart that God is after. So Jesus is asking us, are you willing to obey me? Are we willing to obey him even if it is painful? Now, when James and John tell Jesus that they can go through suffering, Jesus says, well, great. If you're able to suffer, you sure will. But the positions of prominence, you know, those cabinet positions, that's not for me to give. That's determined for somebody else. But I can tell you something else. Let's see what he's saying. Verse 42. And calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, uh, you, know, uh, you know that... Um, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Now before that, the ten are upset with, John, uh, with James and John. Verse 41, And hearing this, the ten, that's the other ten disciples, began to feel indignant with James and John. They're really angry because James and John jumped the line and asked for these prominent positions. The other 10, they didn't give a, even get a chance to get up to the counter and ask for those business class upgrades, right? These guys got ahead of them, so they're really angry. But Jesus goes on to tell them something. He says, look guys, let me tell you how this thing works. Let's start with something that you already know. And he takes, he uses the rulers as an illustration. Here's what he says. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Which means the rulers, the bosses, behave as if they own everything. The rulers control the people because they own the people. The boss thinks that humans are just resources. And so he can deploy them any which way he likes. The rulers are really masters. 
And then he says, their great men exercise authority over them. So their greatness is defined by exercise of authority. In other words, they are strong and dominant in their control. They exercise authority. That's how they demonstrate their greatness. That's what Jesus is saying. Then he says, contrast, verse 43. But it is not so among you. And then he goes on to say, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. So, but it is not among you. That's kind of the pivot. What's above is the way the scheme works outside here. But the one below, which I'm going to tell you, that's the way I work. And that's the way the kingdom operates. What does he say? Uh, he says, um, whoever wishes to become great. So if you really want to be great. Now, the prominent positions, James and John, I can't give it to you because that's not up to me. But I can give you the recipe. I can give you the secret of how to be great. You become a servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a slave. Now, the word slave means a bond servant. Uh, so if I am a bond servant, I would sell myself to somebody and say, look, give me so much money and I will do, I'm, I'm bonded to you. I will do whatever you need for me to do. So notice what Jesus is not saying. He is not saying you be a helper or be a good helper. Or be helping people around you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you want to be great, be willing to give up your rights. Be willing to give up your privileges. Be willing to give up all of your prerogatives. They're all rightfully yours. But we be willing to give that up for the good of others. Which is what servanthood is all about. You see, that's completely radical from just helping people, right? This is being a servant. So what's the difference between a helper and a servant? Kind of sounds similar, doesn't it? But let's just look at it. A helper might help somebody if it is convenient. <clears throat> a servant works even when it is inconvenient. A helper might willingly help people that he or she likes. If you're a servant... You serve people that you might not even like. A helper might say, well, I'll help you because I enjoy doing this thing, whatever it is to help you. A servant serves even when they don't like the work that they have to do. A helper might do something because it gives some personal satisfaction. A servant serves even when there is no personal satisfaction. You see... The mindset of a servant is completely different from that of a helper. It might be inconvenient. It might be people you don't care to hang out with. It might be working hard to enable some people. It might be doing something you absolutely don't enjoy. But that is what a servant would do. So what might servanthood look like for us? It can take on many different colors and shapes. It can, look, uh, it can look different in any kind of setting. But let me just take a Sunday morning for us here at Bayou City Fellowship. Like Tom said in the first service, you know, we have an exploding kids ministry. So, when we serve in a kids ministry role, 
what we are really doing is more than playing with kids and keeping them occupied for two hours. What we are really doing is we are enabling parents to be able to come together and worship together so that their hearts may draw closer to God and they may look more like Jesus every day. So even though you may not enjoy what you have to do, even though it may be a little inconvenient, and even though some of the other servers there may not be people you hang out with, God calls us to serve. And we have to examine our hearts and say, what is our attitude? Is that one of a servant or one of a helper? Or let's say we think in terms of set up and tear down. You know, at this phase of our church life, there's a lot of set up and tearing down going on. Hopefully in a year or so, we move to a new facility. It may not be the case. But I don't know whether you know, when we walk in here, pick up a cup of coffee and sit here and enjoy some music and, and some preaching, this happens because there are people with servant hearts who are serving outside to set up and to tear down. Coming in here long before we arrive, leaving here long after we are gone. These are servant hearts of gold that are doing these things. Some may not particularly care to do it. Some may not even enjoy doing it. Some may not feel like hanging out with those people with whom they do it. Now, I'm not saying that's always the case. But what I am saying is that a servant heart serves so that others, our brothers and sisters, may draw closer to God, that they might flourish as a people of God. And in so doing, we as a body might flourish as a people of God, representing him well in the city where we are called to be. Or perhaps you can look at people who are hurting within our body. Again, it may not be somebody you might hang out with. But acts of compassion, tangible acts of compassion, where you care for those who are hurting. Those are just a couple of examples that we can think about if we don't know where to start. But the message is clear, isn't it? If we want to serve, we are not to be thinking just about helping, but we are, need to be thinking about serving. That is the call that Jesus has on our lives. So, are you willing to suffer? That was the first question Jesus asked. When these guys wanted positions of prominence, Jesus said, first question, are you willing to suffer? They say, yes, okay, you will. Second, are you willing to serve? Be a servant. Be a slave to your brothers and sisters. Now, it's important to notice that Jesus did not condemn them for their ambition. He did not condemn them. He just corrected their thinking a little bit. He just clarified their focus and changed it from themselves to others. That's all he did, right? He just changed their focus and their perspective. He did not condemn them. Ambition was fine. It was good. But they just needed to have their priorities, their perspectives, and their points of view very clearly identified with that of Jesus. And then in verse 45, we see a clear expression of the purpose of Jesus' coming. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You and I won't be giving our lives a ransom for many, but we are called to follow his model, not to serve and not wait to be served. 
Now look, this is a tough call for a follower of Jesus. This is very difficult. He says, if you really want to be great, be willing to suffer and be willing to serve. That's what Jesus says. So let me encourage you here. Don't even think twice. Don't hesitate. Just go for that greatness. Obey God at all costs, even if it's painful and you don't feel like doing it. Choose to serve people, even when it's not convenient or enjoyable. When you think of eternity, that's probably the best investment you can make here on earth. Willing to suffer, willing to serve. That's the great follower Jesus is after. Father God, we thank you for your continually reminding us of what it takes to be your follower. Help us to respond with gratitude, cheerfully, willingly, obediently, in spite of the costs. To that end, we pray for an enabling and empowering and encouragement from the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.